that these commands should not be seen as a checklist for the Christian life, but instead, these commands should instinctively flow from a life of faith. True faith works. Genuine faith in the gospel manifests itself through works. My mic is on and your hearing aid is turned up. You heard me right. I'm using faith and works in the same sentence and not in opposition to one another. In fact, I think our purpose today, as it is with James, is this. It's to show us that true faith that is sourced in and given by God will instinctively manifest itself through works because of the grace of God in the gospel growing my love for Him. That's a long sentence. Let me repeat it again. True faith that is sourced in and given by God will instinctively manifest itself through works because of the grace of God in the gospel growing my love for Him. More simply, my growing love for God strengthens my faith and produces good works. Could have just said it like that, right? My growing love for God strengthens my faith and produces good works. This statement that I just read, we can explain it. We can explain this text. We're only going 14 to 19. Tim's going to hit the next, next week. We can explain it first by looking at the nature of saving faith. James uses two words here that I mentioned, faith, good works, uh, save, and good works, uh, which are often seen as in opposition towards one another. You know anything about Martin Luther? Um, I ring a bell. We've heard it said before, Martin Luther called James the epistle of straw because of this apparent contradiction here in this text. It will be glorious for us to read a quote later in the sermon by Luther himself where he himself uh, meshes these together and solves the contradiction between the two. Because uh, it is just that, a seeming contradiction. Here at Grace and Truth, we hold to the infallib- infallibility of God's Word. That God's Word is completely true and there is no contradiction in and of itself. So first... Let's look at uh, verse 14. James begins, he opens up with two rhetorical questions. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Rhetorical question number one. Second, can that faith save him? Now, it seems obvious here that the answer to both of these is the negative. So if we read it, flip it and read it in the declarative, James is actually saying, brothers, it is of no value to you to say you have faith if you do not have works, because that kind of faith cannot save you. A faith that does not have works cannot save you. James, did you ever meet the Apostle Paul? Martin Luther, the Protestant Reformation. In case you didn't get the memo, salvation is by faith alone. Sola fide. Sola fide. Latin for Salvation was well, Latin for faith alone. Not sal- sal- faith alone. Keep wanting to say salvation by faith alone. That's Paul. Salvation by faith alone, not by works of the law. Sola fide is the Latin phrase. Use it at the dinner table tonight, and everyone, you'll score points with them. 
Latin for faith alone. Let me quote Paul a few times as we look at the nature of saving faith in this apparent contradiction here, because it's important for us to look at faith, because I'm getting blank stares, and that's fine. Because we're talking about a faith that does not have works, is no faith at all, and cannot save you. Romans 3.20, Paul writes, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, in God's sight. Romans 3.28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Lastly, Galatians 2.16 states three times that we are not saved by the works of the law. It says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. Paul seems to say that it is sola fide, And James seems to be saying, you need both faith and works. So who's right? To answer this, we need to look at what is the nature of saving faith, both in its initial stage and in the ongoing stage of salvation. What does that mean? I thought I was once saved, always saved. Brother, don't get me confused. Initial salvation is what Paul is talking about. When he talks about salvation by faith apart from the works of the law, Paul is dealing with his own salvation conversion experience, and he's going against Pharisees and those who would add works to the law. So Paul is saying initial conversion comes by, by faith alone, no works of the law. Because works of the law is only going to bring um, something in it to where you might have an opportunity to boast. And Paul's like, if if we're going to go down that road, I'm going to be all of you. Philippians 3. However, the ongoing salvation, when the Bible also speaks of being saved, it can also refer to an end time salvation, the end of your life. Maybe giving an illustration more towards perseverance or sanctification. So salvation can be the initial salvation, the point of justification at which your eyes are open to the gospel and God illumines you to your sin and your need for Christ. It can also be the point of sanctification, the process of sanctification, which is ongoing, daily. This is big for us to know because when we hear salvation, you are saved by faith, but that salvation by faith has works, we need to know what are we talking about. So in the Protestant Reformation... Luther and those guys are going against a similar idea when they come up with sola fide and the other four solas that come with it. They're going against the Roman Catholic doctrine of salvation by works. So sola fide, how one is saved, uh, brought from death to life, regenerated. It's important to understand because many believers misunderstand James when we come to this passage. Initial salvation is only by faith Clearly stated, Romans 3:23 through 25. We're familiar with the first verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Initial salvation by faith. Romans 10:9. Because... If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord 
and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We are saved by faith. Which Ephesians 2 states, that faith itself even is a gift of God. There is nothing that we could do on our own to merit the slightest smile from God. And in fact, the best works we can bring to God leave us in a deficit because we are coming to Him with our own way of salvation and our own, dis- our own thinking of what will justify us. So our own best works are filthy rags to God and they actually condemn us because of that. Salvation for us only comes by falling at the feet of Jesus, completely and utterly helpless, and trusting in Him and His righteousness alone on our behalf to save us from death that is our just judgment for our sins. Sola fide is exactly right. No works of mine, no backup plan in case God falls through, only pure trust in Jesus to save me. That is what Paul is referring to, and James would concur with that. James is in complete agreement with that. Salvation is by faith alone. Initial salvation is by faith alone. This is important, again, for us to remember Initial salvation by faith, not of works. We were dead in our sins. God gave us grace in the gift of faith to believe the work of redemption He provided in Jesus. So we can cry with the reformers, sola fide, even while reading James 2. So then, what is James talking about? If he states that faith without works cannot save you, first we have to look at context. Context is king. Remember, James is writing to Jews. And James even refers to these Jews, those who are scattered in the dispersion, in verse 14 as, My brothers. In the New Testament, when we refer to someone as my brothers, we are often assuming that those people are believers. So James, writing to believers, is not saying that if someone has faith, initial faith, but does not have works, he cannot be initially saved. James is referring to the process of ongoing salvation, which is sanctification. If someone has true faith, living faith, that person's faith will produce works. Here's Martin Luther's quote. Faith is a living, restless thing. It cannot be inoperative. We are not saved by works. But if there be no works, get this, there must be something amiss with faith. We are not saved by works, but if there be no works, there must be something amiss, something wrong with our faith. The question for James in the verses that we're looking at is not what is works, Or what are the works so I can know what to do to prove I have faith? That's not his question. James is asking, or James is saying, what is the nature of saving faith? Because if works instinctively follow genuine faith, 
and there are no works evident, then we do not say to that person, start doing works. Instead, we say, we need to go back to the basics and look at initial salvation and talk about what is saving faith. Just so we're clear, we are not saying that initial salvation as taught by Paul is by faith alone and ongoing salvation as taught by James is by works. I think we're clear on that. But we are saying that genuine faith in the gospel instinctively manifests itself through works. And that if there are no works evident in someone who claims to have faith in Christ, there is something drastically wrong. If I tell you I love to read, but I never pick up a book and I never read, I prove to you that I don't love to read. Faith is nothing unless there is action. Also, true faith must have action that corresponds with that faith. So, faith must have action. If I tell you I love to read, I believe it, I will read. But also my faith must correspond with, my actions, sorry, must correspond with my faith. They must coincide. So I can tell you over and over again that I believe Mac is better than PC. But if I continually buy a new PC, what is it now, every six months, I prove the opposite to be true. My faith is not corresponding with my action. My faith is Mac is better, but I constantly buy PC. So initial salvation by faith results in action, works. And those works coincide with the nature of my faith, i.e., my works will be God-glorifying. So if my initial salvation is by faith, and it results in action, which is works, okay, I think we're clear, right? Salvation, genuine faith, has works. Those works are going to correspond, coincide with the nature of my faith, which is my nature of my faith is in God. Nothing of myself, all Him who gave me the grace to believe in the first place. So those works are automatically going to come and they're automatically going to be God glorifying because it's all of God. The same one who saved me is the same one who currently is sanctifying me. So we trust in God for our salvation and now that trust will bring works that please God and fulfill His will for us. Sometimes we get caught up in, well, what am I supposed to do? I think that might be the wrong question. My question first would be, do you love God? You claim to have faith, and you wander around wondering, what am I supposed to do with my life? I want to to do God's will. Well, do you love Him? If I love my wife, and I pour my time and energy into finding things she loves and wants to do and, and likes to have, and someone says, you know, what are you going to do for your wife? I, I don't know. I, I don't know what, what her will is and what she would like to do and where we should go for our anniversary. No, I'm going to know. I'm going to, I'm going to know exactly where, what she wants to eat when we get there. And I might get a few things wrong and still buy a toaster for the fifth year in a row. But I'm going to know for the most part what she wants. 
And sometimes we get caught up on what are the works God is commanding of us. When James is saying, it's, you've got it backwards. What good is it if you have faith but don't have works? There has to be true faith. That faith is going to naturally and instinctively produce works. I think Second Peter uh, does a great job. We're, we'll turn to Second Peter 1. He gives us a picture of initial salvation. And he leads that on to uh, expanding, growing your faith. He uses the word supplement. Uh, supplement your faith into these character qualities. Into, into the, yeah, he says quali- into these qualities. Uh, and then how he ends is exactly how we're going to transition uh, further on into what James is, is referring to. So I think it fits hand in glove. Second Peter 1, uh, we're going to read 3 through 9. His divine power has granted to us, God, we're talking about God, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, because of all that, make every effort to supplement your faith. He doesn't say go out and do good works. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, knowledge self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? If these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You will, you will fulfill His will. You will be doing, you will be fulfilling what God in His knowledge is wanting you to do. You will be effective. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Let me, let me pause because we're going to transition, but I want to pause. And sometimes we critique, and for good reason, uh, living... Um, Preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. We, we critique it because uh, there's no power in that. And we say, uh, well, it's just a mantra. And it can be. It can be just a mantra, just like sola fide. Just like whatever else you want to you throw out there. It can be a mantra, but it needs to be a lifestyle. Because if we truly understand the gospel, there's repentance. There is faith. There is, I have nothing to offer, and it is all of God desiring to work in me, and I need to be submissive to Him. I need to love Him, and I I just need to fall at the feet of Jesus. And if that does not give you the power, not saying that like we can tap into this power and it's ours and we can do whatever we want, but I am saying if you, in the midst of difficulty of a circumstance, cannot then please God do His will in that circumstance by you preaching that gospel to yourself, 
then we don't need to worry about, well, I didn't do it right, or I forgot, or it's ineffective. You need to go back and look at initial salvation by faith alone. Because we're referring, James is referring to an ongoing process of faith. And that faith will instinctively have works. On our own, we will forget what the great transaction has done, has taken part on our behalf. We will forget Jesus' suffering on the cross for our sins, taking our shame and giving us His righteousness. We are heirs with Christ, sons of God. However, these truths will and probably already have become commonplace to us, especially to us who have been saved for more than just a few years. We get used to going to church, we get used to reading our Bibles, talking with believers, and we want to go to the next level. We don't realize that Jesus is all-satisfying, the only one who can perfectly remember the gospel and remain faithful when we are faithless. Jesus remains faithful when we fail. Preaching the gospel to ourselves is not an escape from repentance and holiness because a true understanding of the gospel remembers our helpless sinful state apart from Christ and knows we need Him and His work for us to be accepted to the Father. So First Peter at the end is saying, whoever lacks these, is, he's blind because he forgot that he was cleansed from former sins. James illustrates this forgetting or blindness in verse 15 and 16. In his illust- illur- illustration, in his illustration, man, Virginia, the utter shock of someone claiming to have faith but not having works. James is appalled by this. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? James starts the beginning of verse 14 with the exact same phrase that he does the end of verse 16. He brings this into big word inclusio and mainly saying this is all one topic. It has one point and that point is your faith, true faith will have works. So he's saying, what good is that? You have a brother or sister. First, look, it says, if a brother or sister. Okay, he's writing, my brothers. If a brother or sister. So grace and truth. A fellow person at grace and truth. Is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm. So someone in here is lacking in daily food and... Um, poorly clothed. And one of you in here says to them, that's, that's the idea he's getting at. So now we can maybe, maybe see how shocking this is. You're sitting next to someone, and next week they're on the exit at Cornelius Pass with a sign saying, I don't have enough food and money for rent. And we pass them and we say, hey, bundle up, it's supposed to get pretty chilly today. And you might want to get some food in you because you're looking like skin and bones. Light's green. That's the shocking value. It's not just someone we don't know. It's just somebody out there and they're, they're poorly clothed and lack. It's a brother or sister in our body 
and we do not do anything for him. What good is that? I wish there was stronger language. What good is that? So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. How does one get to this point? They claim to have faith. They claim to be a believer. They come to grace and truth. And they get to the point to where they can see a fellow believer, fellow member, visitor, attender, on the street in ratty clothes, and it's cold out, and they are clearly hungry, and we just drive by. And shout out a pious phrase of, Go in peace, God be with you. Peter says, it's by, we forgot. We forgot that our sins were forgiven. James states that their response is worthless, just like faith without works is worthless. I don't know that James has this example here, just so we're clear. I don't think he has this example here to say that this is the best way to show your works. So let's all run out of here and help at a soup kitchen. That's not what he's saying. But I do think that James might be using this example because maybe he heard it was happening in some of the churches that he's writing to. Or, because last week we looked at a text uh, for two weeks prior, we looked at a text on favoritism, and favoritism being sin and not being evidence of our faith. And so maybe it's because it is a way we show favoritism by driving past and, and, and not doing anything for that person. So I'm saying that the Christian life from start to finish entails faith. There are, however, two dangers that we need to watch out for. First is, we'll go quickly through these, once saved, always saved. A simple faith, faith alone, easy believism. Uh, This unbiblical extreme says that since I prayed a prayer years ago, I'm saved forever in God's hand. No one can pluck me out no matter how bad I get. How, how much I could care less, how far away from God I go, no matter what happens the rest of my life, once saved, always saved, I'm good as gold. The sad thing is that sometimes uh, this position has a lot of scripture in it uh, that they rip out of context and they neglect portions like this that state genuine faith will be accompanied by works. Because works and faith go hand in hand. Sometimes this person will state that they are just not that religious. They're just not, it's just not my personality to be that serious about faith. I'm just not that type of, you know, feel-good type of guy. I like to be alone. I like to be at home. There's a football game on. And, you know, but I was saved when I was a kid. I remember I was baptized. (laughs) Worthless. Just not that type of guy. Kids sometimes say this. I said this. When I get older, then I'll be more serious and commit myself totally to Christ. When I get older, I mean, as a 13-year-old, I want to have as much fun as a 13-year-old can. Like riding your bike in somebody's lawn when it's wet and you get mud in there or something. I don't know what 13-year-olds are doing, but you know, when I get older, then I'll commit my life and I'll be more serious. As a kid, I dedicated my life to the Lord, whatever that meant. I did it like 14 times. As if by putting my whole faith in Christ is not exactly that, dedicating your life. Jesus states a stern warning to this kind of mentality in Matthew 7, 21. 
Don't read that passage if you are in this uh, category. It, um, it's on the cost of discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has an excellent book on that. Matthew 7.21 Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And he goes on in a couple of verses, and these people actually said, you know, we prophesied in your name, and we did these things. And he's like, depart, I never knew you. The second extreme, so first is, one saved, always saved. Second extreme is, maybe something that we don't even realize we do. Someone gets saved, and we immediately want to plug them into ministry. Well, that's fine. We want to make sure that believers are doing good works. But we never check up on their relationship with Christ. We never check up on their faith. It's like we are masters of their spiritual future, and we want them to be leading. We have goals for them. We want to be, to be leading a small group in five years. We want to be on the worship team in two and a half, in the nursery at six months. However, sometimes our schedules and desire for growth cause us to pass over the glory that God has for them in the here and now. Uh, for example, an example of an example. I was talking to Sarah about this today, as Graham is uh, maybe getting around the stage where he's going to be walking. And I was saying how quickly we, have, we pass over. I do because I want him to walk um, maybe a little too much. And so I quickly take for granted the little steps that he's taken already. Not steps as in walking steps, but steps as in like he can hold his head up. He can roll. He could, you know, he can, uh, um, what else can he do? He can crawl. He can hold his own bottle. And you know, like things like that where it's very helpful. He can hold his own bottle now. I don't have to do it. Um, things that are extremely helpful that he can do now, uh, I look past those. And I'm like, dude, please walk. When you walk, life is going to be fun. We're going to kick balls and play around. and It's going to be good. And, and he's like, I'm not there yet, Dad. And I want him to be there. And I'm overlooking the stage right now that is super fun. And it's the crawl, pull up on your pants. You know, I want you to pick me up stage. Believers, sometimes... We need to just rest in the glory of the gospel, not looking to shortcut and try and get to some spiritual goal that we've set for ourselves. We have these lofty pursuits of works or good deeds, and and sometimes our faith is gone at the cost of that. If faith is the continual emptying of myself, and depending solely on God, and out of that grows greater love for God and desire to do His will, then why do we not care how that is going on in our fellow brothers and sisters? Why do we not care how that is going on in ourselves? So if faith is a continual emptying of ourselves and depending solely on God, faith is intrinsically linked to my love for, my dependence on God. If that is happening and out of that grows greater love for God and desire to do His will, then why am I not more concerned about that happening in my brother to where when I go for coffee, it's not about whatever, it's about the glorious goodness of Jesus to us and how He did not blot me out last night when I argued with my wife or when I was unkind and unmerciful to my son. The believer who does that, who speaks of the goodness of God, who does this, 
will instinctively be doing the will of God with great delight because they love God and they cannot get over the fact of the gospel. I I don't think that Christianity, that James is writing and saying that you have to have, your faith has to have works and it's going to be begrudging. Because what if like... First thing in the book he sits down is, hey, have joined the midst of trials. Well, if I have joined the midst of trials, chances are in the good times, I'm going to have that same joy. And the joy is not rooted in some ethereal notion as we look. The joy is rooted in our ultimate faith in Christ and what he has done for us. So true faith is going to grow in love for God, our Savior, because we are remembering the gospel We are asking God to continually draw that into my mind. And that will produce instinctively good works. Be more concerned with faith than works. Because genuine faith works. Be more concerned with faith. Your love for God. Be more concerned with that then we are, am I doing the right thing? Am I spending enough time in the Word? Am I praying long enough because I'm, I'm meeting with somebody tomorrow and we're accountability partners? It's, it's not about that. The God of the universe broke into time and He rescued you. And you're more concerned with how you are ministering in a church than you are how my relationship is with the God of the universe. Let me close this point. This is our biggest point. This is, ever, this is the meat and potatoes. The rest is application. Let me close this point with an illustration. If you're an adult right now, currently right now is resting, resting, not sleeping, at a resting, breathing rate, you are probably taking around 12 to 20, big jump there, breaths a minute. If you're an infant... Chances are, you are is drastically higher at around 40 to 60 breaths a minute. And if you're an athlete in great shape, and for some odd reason in the back, currently running on a treadmill, then you're breathing at a pace of 60 to 70 times a minute. It's hard for the researchers to get consistent data because the slightest variable changes. So that's why it's 12 to 20. So in the last minute or so that I mentioned this, you took about 15 breaths. And that's probably the first 15 you've thought of all day. We don't think about it. We don't actively pursue breathing. But because our bodies are alive, we breathe. We don't pursue breathing. We do, however, pursue keeping our body alive, do we not? We eat healthy sometimes. We exercise, sometimes. We don't swerve into oncoming traffic. We don't drink the bottles of cleaner from under the sink. And we definitely don't play patty cake with black bear cups. Because we want to keep on living. We're not thinking about breathing. We're thinking about living. And if I can live with all my limbs, all the better. We're not thinking about breathing. But because we live, we breathe. The same is true in our life of faith. We do not pursue works. It's going to sound odd. Stick with me. But they instinctively come when we pursue God. Our pursuing God and loving Him grows our faith, 
which in turn works the will of God. So James does not want us to leave here, like I said, go work in a soup kitchen. But maybe God is leading you to work in a soup kitchen. And because of your love for your Savior, you would have no greater joy than to obey His will and work in a soup kitchen. The result is the same. We're working in a soup kitchen. But the motivation and power to do the work is completely of God and not us. So that all the glorious gods and not ours. First Peter 4.11 uh, Beautiful. All the glory is God's for the work that He's doing. It's not ours. So faith that is sourced in, given by God, in initial salvation, will instinctively manifest works in us because of the grace of God growing my love for Jesus. James states that true faith must have works, but he does so by stating the negative through rhetorical questions. And an example there of the brother or sister who are naked and lacking clothes, or uh, food. They would be lacking clothes. However, he does come right out and state in verse 17 that faith by itself, without works, is dead. And the person who has dead faith is really not at a neutral point. Dead faith is a deficit. The deficit of dead faith. They are at a deficit to receiving genuine faith. Now understand, we are talking about this in light under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. God can save whomever He will at whatever time, no matter the circumstance. And He does so in beautiful and glorious ways. Opportunities where we, in our sinful state, say, unsavable, we talked about this last week, uh, Chad did in his message on favoritism, unsavable, and God saves him. And all glory goes to God. So we praise Him for salvation, especially for ruining our um, mindset and our our worldview shaping in times like that when God saves people that we think are unsavable. However, James states that faith without works is dead. He states it twice in this passage. He's going to state it later in Tim's. I don't want to step on Tim's passage, but he states it later there too. He also states twice that faith without works is worthless. He also says it's empty. And then in verse 19, he says that faith without works is compared to the faith of demons. This is not good adjectives if that is your faith. If you say, faith alone, sola fide, that's it. Easy believism. He's like, that's, this is bad. This is dead faith. Typically, scriptures speak of dead, death, dying. And it's usually a symbol uh, uh, as the opposite of redemption or justification. Because life, light, is usually seen in light of God. Um, the purpose of redemption, eternal life. Uh, there's usually a, a good connotation for light. Life and bad for dead, death, darkness. I think we most of the time understand that. I would especially think this to be the case since we are saying that works are instinctively coupled with true faith. So no works, no true faith, hence dead faith. The fact James calls faith without works dead faith makes me think that those who do not have works are unbelievers. So these who have dead faith, the ones who have faith, who say they have faith but no works, are unbelievers. I would also think that dead faith refers to unbelievers because of the similarity of their faith to demons. It's not normally good to be seen in the same page as demons. Just going to tell you right now. Someone says, you have demon faith, that's bad. 
However, I do see this passage in James being written not only to show us why we as redeemed people must grow in our faith, but it's also serving as a warning to believers who have become lax in their faith. So I do think, even though he's using language typically seen as referring to unbelievers, dead faith, demon faith, I think that he could be using strong language to show us a a very strong warning to those who are becoming lax in their faith. For instance... In James' example, in verses 15 and 16, he states that both the ones in need and the ones who are expected to help are believers. They are all Christians in that example. So they are the ones who do not have works with their faith, they don't have genuine faith, are believers. So I think it is possible that here, even though he's saying it's dead faith, we could be referring to believers. I believe in the Lordship of Christ. That those who come to faith in Christ by God will receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. And it is impossible to be a halfway Christian or a benchwarmer Christian. However, that being said, there are times when our faith is weak because of sin and allowing the gospel, like I said, to become a mantra instead of a lifestyle. Jesus says in Luke 14, 26 and 27, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. A few verses later he says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Nonetheless, I do think James, although mainly referring to unbelievers, acknowledges that there can be unbelievers here in this category of having dead faith. Faith without works. I'm sure there's more examples that we can think of, but I have two applications in regards to dead faith. People who are at a deficit because they have no works to prove uh, the genuineness of their faith. First, the religious person. They claim faith, but they do their own works. This person claims Christianity and faith in God, but has no works for God to prove the genuineness of their faith. And they are actually at a great deficit to receiving the gospel. Because this person looks back and remembers events surrounding a time when there was emotionalism maybe. There was a great call to come forward. Lots of people came. Whatever the situation is, maybe you're just at home. And this person remembers that. They remember some events surrounding it and they say, I believe that. I prayed a prayer. And yet they do what they want to do. They are the forgetful hearer or the Pharisee who toes the line on certain standards. But they do it because that is their personality, not because they love God or the gospel. They do good works that they think are good and should be done. But the motivation and heart for them is not coming from genuine faith. It is likened to a husband who buys his wife the classical, the classic horrible anniversary gifts. The toaster, melon baller, a book on how to be a better cook, 
Or that hideous eight-foot teddy bear with a heart stitched to his hands. He's buying your stuff. He's doing what he's supposed to do. We're supposed to buy stuff. Our economy tells us it is good when we spend money. So we have to buy stuff. But it's not because he loves her enough to find out what she wants. It's because he's getting her what he thinks. Or what the guys at work say, this is a good gift. I got it once before and it seemed to work. This is actually hard to point on someone because we see a person who claims faith and they have works of some sort. Usually only a person who is very close, a family member or a close personal friend, is going to see that this person's faith is not genuine. This person is at a great deficit because they think they have faith and they have no need for the gospel. Second, we have the first is the religious person. Second is the relaxed person. They claim faith and now they have no need for works. Sometimes they are reformed, unfortunately. They are reformed and so they believe in the sovereignty of God. I was saved. God is taking care of everything now. God has... Uh, given me Christ's righteousness and my sins are as far as the east is from the west. As long as I get a spot in heaven, let me enjoy life down here. They don't see their works. Or they don't see their need for works. They don't realize that growth in a relationship with God is the sweetest spot to be and freedom there in doing, is in doing His will. They find excuses to be apart from church, to be apart from other believers because they don't want to hear how their relationship is going, how their believers are doing in their love for Christ. They are relaxed. These extremes are similar, the religious and the relaxed, but both are at a deficit because of dead faith. All of us, before Christ, were at a deficit, the exact deficit that they are, because of our sin and self-reliance. And only by God's grace has He given us life in His Son. And it is our delight to pray for those, to minister to those, to see that and desire to ask that God would be gracious and that He would reverse that deficit and grant them saving faith. Lastly, James states in verse 19 that the one who believes but has no works is in the same boat as demons. This to me can be a very scary position. And one I think that many of us realize that apart from Christ, this is where we would stay. Maybe there's even someone here today that realizes they are here in the delusion of orthodox faith. James in verse 19, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. James is quoting Deuteronomy 6.4. The great Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear, and is the first word of, Hebrew, uh, of Deuteronomy 6.4. And this was Israel's mantra. This was their motto. So when James says here that they believe that God is one, of course they do. All good Jews believe that. They have orthodox faith. What is shocking though is that the demons also believe. The demons, they've been around since God created them in the beginning. They were there through the Protestant Reformation. 
they were there through preaching in the first century, through every period of church history where there's revival, uh, where there's downfalls. The demons probably is most likely they have better orthodox faith than we do. The scary part is, is they have no actions with that orthodox faith. So it is not a matter for us to merely have good theology. Good theology apart from works is demon faith. Good theology apart from works is dead faith. It is important for us to study theology, but not to become an intellectual egghead. It is important because that is our God. That is the, that is the personality, the works of our God, the one whom we are in a love relationship with. So us who have genuine faith, genuinely desire to know Him, instead of pursuing works, we're pursuing God. We desire to know Him. We're going to have a desire to read His Word. We're going to have a desire to read other books that pursue us to read His Word. And through those books, God is shaping our theology. Imagine the despair of knowing someone who defends justification by grace alone through faith alone and who has never come to Jesus and pleaded for that justification by faith alone, by grace alone. You can believe whatever you want, but until that orthodox belief system brings you to the cross, it means nothing. It's like me telling you, I love to read and I don't read. I often think of biblical, biblical linguists, guys who study Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. There's one in particular, he teaches at UC Berkeley. Uh, he's a genius. And, um, but he's an unbeliever, he's an atheist. He teaches and he writes books about the Bible. And books better than most Orthodox Christians. I mean, the guy is a brain. And in the Old Testament, especially in the narratives, uh, there's no one who can compare and he's an atheist. Someone who can write on narratives, the Pentateuch, the acts of God, and not believe them. Even Paul, who in Philippians 3 tells us of his pedigree, how he was orthodox, if anyone was, he was, and how that was rubbish to him in comparison to knowing Christ. So don't sit here and think that listening to a sermon today or online merits you anything. Don't think that studying the ins and outs of a certain text, doctrine, or practice for the sake of intellectual astuteness will bring you any closer to God or saving faith. Let's read together Deuteronomy 6. Not all of us out loud, but let's go to Deuteronomy 6. I think it's good for us if we finish the great Shema. We're going to read uh, verses 3 down through uh, 7. Deuteronomy 6, 3 through 7. This was Israel's, this is the greatest command given to Israel. Verse 3, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Don't get caught up on that. The Lord is one. He is one. He's three in one. In the Old Testament, he refers to himself in a monotheism. He's, he's one. Okay? He's the one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. The great Shema is not a command to works, but a command to love God and make him your life. When Christ is my life, I teach him instinctively to Sarah, to, my, to Graham, to those God brings in my life. Christ should be all-consuming for us because of the glory of the gospel he has imparted, made known to us. And that will instinctively produce good works for his will. James is writing, saying that faith and works go hand in hand. And works will instinctively follow genuine faith. True faith is one that puts everything at Jesus. It it gives everything to him and gives him your heart and soul. You love him. You love reading him in scripture. And you cannot wait to meet with him. We will fall short. We will always fall short. This side of eternal rest with him. But our pursuit is him. He is all satisfying, forever faithful, and our pursuit of God will accomplish His will for His glory. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Let's pray. God, we, we come to You. Uh, we know ourselves. We know our hearts. And we're amazed that You will hear us that you will hear our cries of repentance, that you will hear our heart's cry of love to you, of a desire to return after seasons of lack, being lax in our, our faith toward you and our love for you. God, I pray that here we would pursue you. We would find the joy of pursuing Christ, knowing that, as James says, that will instinctively bring good works. Pursuing Christ will give us joy in trials. Pursuing Christ will cause us to recognize, I am not wise and I need wisdom. God is wise. God is generous. Pursuing Christ, I cannot be I cannot show favoritism. My pursuit is Christ. There is no wall of hostility. It is broken down because of the cross. And everyone is, the ground is level at the cross. So God, we ask that you through your word today would by your spirit allow us, give us great joy Work the gospel in our heart that we would pursue you and find great joy in that. There is only true joy in that. So God, we leave it to you. And we ask that you would help us as we had 
faith as you gave us faith to believe in initial salvation. Continue that faith in us today. Grow that faith in us today. So my pursuit is you. We pray this to you because you have been so gracious to us and opened our eyes to give us a desire to come in dependence to you. And that work was done 2,000 years ago on the cross by your son. So we thank you for that. And we look forward to worshiping you and remembering the gospel as we celebrate this table of remembrance of what Christ has done for us. Jesus, thank you. Amen.